Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here, as always, with David Scott. Colgo, fantastic to be back. Uh, our guest this week is Laura Fitzsimmons, Vice President of JP Morgan for Global Macro Sales. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on here. Um, look, you've had a really interesting career. Uh, you spent some time at uh, Goldman Sachs as an analyst, uh, and you were head of sales for uh, uh, Maker Trading in London uh, as well. Um, what, what does a typical day involve for you now at, uh, at JPM? Well, unfortunately, the typical day starts quite early. Uh, I have to be in the office at 6.30 a.m., which, you know, is not for the faint-hearted either, uh, covering our New Zealand client base, um, in addition to, to local clients as well. So it's an early start, but I guess the, the first morning bus is spent mainly scouring through the media and uh, and seeing, obviously, what's been moving overnight, uh, you know, obviously what headlines, what tweets have come out, uh, is, seems to be more the case these days, uh, and uh, and obviously what that might mean for my, my clients' positions as we, as we head through the week. Uh, once we get to... Uh, uh, the office, you know, there's the usual morning meeting with the traders, uh, with our strategists and economists, uh, and essentially where we talk about, you know, what sort of happened overnight, but also what it means for the next few days. So that's generally the time frame that we try to, to work towards. Uh, once a week, though, we probably have a, a more sort of longer term strategy meeting uh, and where we sort of get into the, the bigger issues and, and the big themes that we're expecting will impact our clients over the next few weeks. Yeah, so, um, so very much a, a medium term sort of uh, management of, um, of, of positions, etc. Yeah. I mean, it is, but at the same time, you have to be in these markets very, you know, things are moving all the time. So you really have to be, you know, reacting quite quickly. Um, but remembering that, you know, clients aren't in and out of trades the way, you know, some of the, the traders might be, um, you know, in managing their risk. Um, you know, obviously investors move slower um, and, you know, hedge funds might move faster than than maybe a central bank might. Uh, so there's, there's different types of clients, different things are important to them. So you've got to try and really tailor, you know, what's going on and, and what they need to know um, to their needs. You know, when I think probably over the last uh, few months, have you found that the balance of, if you like, policy and political news that you've been tuning into uh, has, um, you know, increased uh, mm. in terms of uh, what you've had to uh, brief yourself each morning on? Yeah, I think we've all had to become uh, experts in US politics, <laughs> and I don't think I'm there yet at all. And, tr- still- and notifications for uh, Donald Trump's uh, tweets, of course. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So, yeah, it's definitely been, um, I mean, you go through phases in markets where, you know, it's geopolitical risk or, you know, and obviously in the last year or so, it's all been about the actual political risk. Uh, and, you know, clearly we've had some amazing events throughout the last year. Uh, and I think that sort of has made us quite wary that we're going to have more events like that. So that's probably the time when that won't happen. So maybe you could think about, you know, the elections coming up in Europe from that perspective, uh, where the market feels like it's probably been burned a couple of times from, you know, what the polls are expecting or, you know, what the, what the odds might suggest. Uh, and then we've had some, some out of the box outcomes. 
So, you know, really just trying to handle all that and, and figure out, you know, in terms of, of, you know, trying to still have positive returns in this sort of environment, you know, what are the best ways to mitigate against those risks? Um, but at the same time, balancing it with, you know, perhaps a global economy that is, is actually looking a lot better than it has in, in, a, in a long time. So it's, uh, it's certainly an interesting one, but yeah, clearly one where po- politics is playing a much more important role. So we're here with two macro specialists uh, in David and Laura. So I'm going to um, get you guys to, to make I'm the running here. <laughs> we're going to uh, we're going to sink our teeth definitely into some of those big sort of policy issues and um, how um, the market picture has been evolving over the last few months. Uh, on the show today, we're going to talk about um, some of the differences between uh, the hard and soft data we've seen uh, out of the U.S. Uh, we'll look at this week's uh, little mini rally in uh, in stocks and the prospect of maybe finally uh, the ASX possibly broaching the 6,000 mark. Um, you know, whether it actually means anything is another question. Um, we'll look at uh, how this all hangs together, I suppose, for the RBA. And um, uh, and just because uh, markets enthusiasts are people too, we might chat about some of our favorite TV shows towards the end. Right. Um, we have been through what has been an extraordinary few months on global markets. And while we're not seeing lots of volatility, um, particularly in equities, we are seeing market mood shift around quite a lot. Um, one of the interesting themes that we've seen um, has been this um, very bullish sentiment uh, emerging in the U.S. economy, particularly in the financial sector. Um, and that's also been, you know, we keep talking about this, I suppose, we've talked about this in previous episodes. A lot of the really big improvements that we've, um, the foundation for those was laid in the middle of last year. It was, um, the U.S. economy was clearly starting to pick up. Uh, unemployment kept falling. The jobs kept coming. Uh, and then we had this, you know, I suppose this, um, uh, flammable sort of policy, uh, uh, set that arrived when, when Trump was, um, was elected in November. Um, but with all of this sentiment that we've seen since November, uh, it's been a bit of a wait to see some of the hard data coming through. Uh, and I suppose one of the reasons we look closely at sentiment indicators is that you expect the decisions to follow if the posit- positive sentiment uh, is sustained. So the big question is, are we going to see this real heat starting to come through in the US economy? Laura, do you want to take us through what you've been seeing there? Yeah, well, certainly it's been an interesting topic because as you as you mentioned, the sort of some of the soft data and the survey data has been really, you know, obviously quite strong, particularly what we saw in the US consumer confidence numbers this week. Uh, and market participants are trying to determine whether, you know, they are, should we believe this? Um, you know, is it just that people are feeling okay? I mean, how many people are actually feeling okay is, you know, the other thing when you look at the sample size of these things. Uh, but at the same time, it's, you know, will it translate, as you say, into real spending, um, you know, from households and obviously in terms of business sentiment as well into actual, you know, capital expenditure. So I think at the moment, we feel that the, the indication is there that there will be that strength coming through. Um, we look at, you know, sort of things like the new orders components, uh, Obviously, in terms of the you know the labour components within some of this survey data, very strong in the US this week. So, any way that you look at that report that we had um, in terms of US consumer confidence, it was very strong. And you, you know, whatever way you spice it, so for us at the moment, that still um, you know feeds into what we think could be something down the line. We also feel that when we look at our sort of PMIs, um, which JP Morgan actually has has our own set of PMIs that we follow in terms of the global one, we've got an EM Asia one. Um, so we keep a, obviously a close track on all of those. Um, but we feel at the moment that they're giving us enough indications um, for, for future growth down the line. And particularly when we look globally, it, it's there. The US has had some more mixed 
uh, indicators. Um, so, and we all know that the first quarter in the US has been weak for the last few years. Um, and we think that maybe this time you have had a little bit of an impact from weather uh, and some sort of temporary factors again. So, yeah, particularly, it does you seem- know, uh, those harsh snowstorms you get yeah. in the Northeast, um, they seem to come every year. Uh, now, um, so Boston, New York, uh, in particular, um, they tend to kind of just slow down and stop. It's um, also the timing. Like they are frequent, but obviously I think that makes it much harder to go and seasonally adjust these figures as well. And that's yeah. why you get uh, often these potholes at the start of the year. Then you start seeing where it comes into the Northern Hemisphere spring, uh, a lot more activity picks up. And all of a sudden, you know, everyone goes from like being mega bears, super <laughs> pessimistic to like, you know, euphoric about uh, the state of things. And it's probably little surprise that we've seen the Fed up until recently doing their hikes at the back end of, uh, of 24, 2015 and 2016 probably helps explain that as well. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I suppose, um, you know, this time around, we, we got a March one. Um, mm. And uh, we'll see as we head into the summer um, how this hard data starts to come through now and whether that will actually follow it. Dave, what's your, um, uh, whether that'll follow the, the sentiment that we've been seeing. Dave, what's your take on, on, uh, on the picture for the, for the hard data? Well, first and foremost, you find that in the past that uh, they've had a fairly good relationship. Now, the sentiment indicators tend to be a lead indicator, so you're getting impressions of what people are seeing on the ground. Now, of course, the hard data, so actually measuring that activity, comes often far later. You know, you talk about sometimes a lag effect of a month or two months at a time. So you don't see what's been seen on the ground now. You see it in two months' time, uh, which says to me that, uh, you know, all the signs are there. You know, the, the U.S. consumer confidence reading was amazing. What a 16-year high. Uh, the particularly all the indicators in relation to the labour market in that report were extremely strong as well. Um, I've got no reason to go and doubt. No, in the past, you look at the relationship. There's a fairly strong correlation. And what is fascinating, I think, about that consumer confidence reading is particularly. For uh, people like us, and I suspect a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, you know, follow the headlines quite closely, and there's this kind of air of chaos um, and a lot of uncertainty, and it's certain, certainly something that we're familiar with in Australia: political uncertainty and um, policy uncertainty. Um, you know, in Canberra, for example, you know, one of the big challenges is whether the government might have lots of great plans, but whether it can implement them remains a problem because of this, um, what appears to be this entrenched position we, we've got to now where the, where the parliament uh, arithmetic um, is a bit complex for whoever's uh, in office. Mm. So, um, and Trump has now suddenly found himself in this the same kind of situation. Um, I think uh, really looked really fascinating p- from a political perspective. He kind of went in there and he was so determined and he, you know, that he was going to repeal Obamacare. It all kind of fell apart. But, Yet again, we've we've seen this consumers the consumer sentiment uh, reading just shaking that off and being completely com- comfortable with that. Look, that's it, it is, but the, we must remember with that survey as well was actually taken before this healthcare vote went right. So it happened about two weeks before. So that may have influenced the results, but I really don't think so. I mean, mm. It's it's no. You look at other like sentiment surveys, like PMI surveys. Uh, you know, uh, they've all been improving as well. Speaking of the JP Morgan uh, Global <laughs> Report, I often write about that each month, and uh, <laughs> no, I think it's sitting at uh, multi-year highs at the moment. So. Um, that's that's business saying that things are much better than what they were in the past as well. Mm. And of course, in the US, uh, you've had all of this job creation. Jobs are out there. Labor markets uh, starting to get, you know, what looks to be fairly tight. Yeah. That's um, right. So if you're, you know, um, 
an American out there thinking about their prospects, it actually looks pretty good for the next couple of years, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think you know, whether you, you give a lot of hope to what Trump may bring or, or what he doesn't, uh, I think right now we have to remember that the underlying economy is strong and that's a great base and it's probably, as you say, a way Americans haven't felt for a number of years. Uh, people are feeling good about things. They've got the summer coming and, and you know, I think overall we're, we're quite positive for the remainder of, of 2017 and, and it's not just America as well. We have to remember that Europe's done a lot better. That's probably been the real outperformer um, this year and uh, we can't sort of deny that, um, which obviously now makes us focus on what the ECB might do next and that's clearly been something that's in the last 24 hours been a big question for markets as well. Yeah, so the ECB um, had to do a little bit of a scramble. Six unnamed sources. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, do you want to talk us through, Dave, um, what they've had to do in terms of uh, managing the market's expectations? Okay, well, Mario Draghi, after the March meeting, I believe it was Draghi, went and said uh, that uh, that they there was discussion involving uh, you know, returning policy to, to normal settings. Um, and the markets took that as a sign that uh, all of a sudden the quantitative easing, which is going on at the moment, is going to go and cease and soon. And you saw the euro went in jackknife tie. You saw you no know, European bond yields go and move higher substantially. Um, and then surprise, surprise, uh, after that maybe – Unnerved a few uh, policymakers at the ECB. These six unnamed sources uh, came out and said that uh, the markets had totally misinterpreted what had been said uh, and that they're not going to go and give any signal that they're going to go and change uh, their current policy stance, uh, at least at the April meeting. Because the problem here um, is um, for the, I suppose, what you might call the European periphery, right? So those, um, you know, Germany looking in pretty rude health, uh, UK so far looking mm. okay, um, uh, France. Um, chugging along nicely, um, but you get out to the you know the Spains, Portugal's, um, uh, and they are a you know they couldn't deal with higher costs of borrowing at the moment. No. Yeah. Um, so I, I just well, I think it was in, it's interesting. Uh, it's great to have somebody on the show, Laura, who's a, a fan of PMIs. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, there's not enough fans of PMIs. You, you, get one, you get one every week. I'm the biggest fan of diffusion indexes you'll ever find. I know. Yeah. I, I think, I, I, and I think, you know, in reading your copy, Dave, it, you know, it's often, I've, I can't, I don't think I, I can ever remember anybody being able to explain diffusion in, indexes in so many different ways. <laughs> um, you know, you've an original Such way a of. talent. Ex- <laughs> Put that in my resume. <laughs> um, what are your favorite uh, PMIs? So, so obviously, mm. JPM has, um, you've got a set of them. Uh, proprietary yeah. ones yourselves. Um, That's right. So, yeah. um, and what do they take in? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's it's looking at uh, in terms of, I mean, we we have clearly ones for the different geographic regions, as I mentioned, um, but really, it is getting that sort of the finger on the pulse of you know businesses making decisions uh, on the ground. Um, obviously, you, you do have in terms of um, you know obviously the manufacturing, and then you have services, etc. You know, the different components of of the industries. Um, but overall, I mean, we just tend to combine those with also something we have called a nowcaster, which I don't know if you're also familiar with, David, but that's another I had one. A fed <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but uh, we have our own one again at JP Morgan. Um, but it's, it's something where we just try to, to look at, obviously, the hard data that we're getting through and then the soft data like PMIs, et cetera, put it all into this model. And right now, as I said, that's actually giving us quite a good um, sense of, of, of optimism for what's going to come for the remainder of the year. So, look, apart from, obviously, that and then also you clearly your, your China cakes and PMI and, and your, clearly the IFO and things like that out of Germany, um, you know, the usual ones that everyone in the market looks 
habitat. Um, and to be honest, I think we've felt that they've been much more reliable in recent years um, than uh, than obviously some of the GDP data that has disappointed a lot um, in some in some parts of the world. I mean, obviously here in Australia, we've had you know clearly soft GDP. Same said for New Zealand for Q4. And you wonder whether you know these things often get revised later on down the track, revised up. But by then, it means nothing for the markets. You know, we're trying to be forward looking, so that's why PMIs are quite essential in that. Yeah, um, Dave. Uh, as you mentioned, you, you look at these on a regular basis. Start of the month is always, you know, terribly exciting and busy. Well, I, can't, I can't write to at least ten posts uh, next week on just PMI reports alone. Yeah. Um, so, what are the ones that you particularly look to? Oh, look, the ISM uh, report in the, uh, the US is, I think, the definitive one, and uh, that is market moving. Um, I used to pay a lot more attention to the Chinese data, um, but it's been so static and steady uh, that it's lost a lot of its market impotence, so uh, my potency. So, um, yeah, the US ones are very important, uh, European PMIs. The one thing I found interesting is that whereas in the past you saw that there's quite a bit of outperformance in either one area of the world, Right, and then and that was the detriment of other areas of the world in terms of how they were performing. We're seeing a great big uplift now in areas apart from emerging markets in Asia. Now, that's the, the weak link in that chain, which I find is kind of strange because at the same time, China, China's economy is saying the data is very, very strong. So it's uh, just something that I'm keeping an eye on as well. Like a lot of those sort of other smaller manufacturing areas, particularly the Korean PMI has been horrible recently. Uh, and that's a, an open economy, which is very, very like, well-known for its manufacturing sector. So it's just something to go and keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. So Korean PMI, uh, there you go. Uh, keep an eye on that. Um, <laughs> it, it certainly is you know, not exactly um, you know, something that you'll read headlines about um, you know, all over the place, but uh, Dave will probably be watching it uh, for, on Business Insider. One thing I know you do pull my leg about uh, from time to time is the Irish PMI, which sometimes <laughs> will come out with a reading of something like 57. That's, and, that's because it's only got one question in the survey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling? On a Friday night, probably. Yeah, yeah. Go, go and be honest with, uh, with the listeners. Now, you, when I went, first told you that, you tell me what, you tell the response that you gave me about sure. how that, was, uh, that survey was determined. I think it was, you know, somebody from the Bureau of Statistics goes down at the road and says, hey, you, there, how are you going? He said, yeah, all right, okay, 56. <laughs> <laughs> in the pub, of course. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, um, now... Uh, some interesting market action this week. Yields have been falling again. Mm. Uh, stocks have been rallying. So bonds are being rallying. Stocks have been rallying. Uh, the stock, uh, U.S. stock market, um, uh, it had you know just been edging backwards, just um, a few points every day. Um, you know, I think eight days in a row, um, which is um, the first time in. Uh, uh, um, I can't remember. It was a very long period of time, so um, uh, that we'd seen that on the on the Dow, uh, that it consecutively fell for eight days, um, and uh, but then it's you know it's popped back up again. Um, but um, Laura, how do you manage these unusual market dynamics um, that we're seeing? Because there's there's a little bit of uncertainty. There's this you know a lot of talk about it. You know, stretched equity value equity mm. valuations. Um, bonds have been bond yields have been trying to break out for a while. Um, but, you know, how do you manage this? 
Yeah, it's it's always a topic of discussion because when you have sort of the inverse correlation between stocks and bonds suddenly breaking down, um, you know, that, that was, has been a phenomenon, though, that we have seen throughout the period of QE, so when everything just rallied. And it just, you know, clearly asset prices were driven up everywhere, but, you know, you still obviously had central banks buying government bonds and, and the world buying them with them. Um, so it's, it has been something that we've been a bit more familiar with in recent years anyway, um, but occasionally you do get these nights where, you know, we return to that and you sort of think, well, what's going on here? But I think it was interesting. I mean, clearly the ECB had a lot to do with the bond side of things last night. So, I mean, you had good US data and obviously we had a lot of hawkish Fed speak throughout this week, particularly Rosengren last night, um, you know, talking about potentially four hikes this year, uh, which which is clearly a risk, we think. Um, we're still only looking for three at the moment in terms of the official house forecast, but four is definitely a risk. Uh, and the markets had been a lot worried about, a lot more worried about that as we were around the March decision. Um, but, you know, I think really what you've got since the consumer confidence number that we talked about earlier in the week, that's when stocks obviously started to really recover and they haven't really looked back since then. Uh, and to me, when I look at equity markets, it does just feel like the, the dips are very, very shallow, much more than before. And something that we've looked at a lot is in terms of the corrections that we've seen over the last um, two years, I guess, you know, each time that correction is also in a much, not only shallower, but it's a shorter time frame, and obviously the two are linked. Um, but, you know, that's been a phenomenon that we've been observing. Um, and, you know, to us, that suggests that there is still this, this underlying demand um, that people really are and still are buying the dip mentality in stocks, because I don't think there's really that many other great alternatives for, for investment right now. And that's how a, a lot of, you know, funds, I think, in the US might feel. Um, in terms of the bond yields, as you mentioned before, potentially breaking out, and it looked like, obviously, the Trump trade was on the reflation trade globally. You know, stocks were going higher, bond yields were going higher. So then you had that inverse correlation back. But that's stalled now. Um, and look, it might be a little bit to do with quarter end and month end as well that we have this week. We do think you're going to go back to a period now where we start to see a little bit more uh, bearish price action and bonds. So we start to see yields moving a little bit back higher again. But I think the problem is then for markets, we're just range bound again. And that makes it very difficult because I think the one other thing that stands out to me at the moment in markets when you have these correlations breaking down as well, it's also that implied volatility doesn't reflect the risk that we have. And you talked before about political things being obviously much more important now for markets. Um, and, you know, from day to day, we don't know what's going to come out of Washington. Um, and, you know, we have to admit that. Um, and it's, it's really quite interesting that when you look at, you know, FX markets or rates markets, equity markets, in terms of implied volatility, none of that is reflecting the kind of realised moves that you could get. And look, maybe it's something to do with, you know, in equities, I guess the dips are shallower. So yeah, sure, maybe the, the moves will not be as large in terms of having to protect yourself on the downside. But overall, it does seem to us that there's probably something mispriced somewhere and it, it'll have to give eventually. Yes, I, I get the distinct impression that a lot of uh, I know these shallow dips and the, the confidence markets are showing are very much based around the hope that Donald Trump will be able to go and deliver on this comprehensive tax package. I think everyone uh, is hoping that he'll be able to go and get 15% flat over the line. Uh, that would go and obviously put a rocket under the US market. But uh, of course, if he fails to go and do that, I would be surprised to not see a, you know, quite a substantial pullback because a lot of this move was seen not only in the last couple of weeks but since Trump was elected was this premise that no, he's going to go and, and bring Americans back to work and make things simpler, lower taxes. Uh, and, of course, if he can't deliver upon that, it, the markets rallied a long way very quickly and it could probably unwind even faster. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, uh, I think one of the other things uh, you mentioned there, Laura's um, end of quarter um, uh, patterns that we see sometimes – uh, and Dave, um, you, you were looking at this a little bit during the week, but sometimes we do tend to see towards the end of a quarter, 
um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, uh, you know, particular uh, funds looking at, you know, making sure that they close out everything or hit some certain targets uh, for for that particular quarter, this being the March quarter, um, that uh, that that might be um, uh, distorting uh, prices um, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, but that's that's part and parcel of what the markets are. You know, you, you often see that uh, you know some obscure moves happen in the final few days of the uh, of each quarter, in particular. Uh, but particularly, you know, like before the end of a financial year. So in Australia, that's uh, at the end of June. You often see a lot of tax loss selling and the like. The one thing as well that you often see after the quarter ends is that once portfolio managers have gone and dressed up their other uh, positions to say, here, what we're, this is what we're reporting at the end of the quarter, they'll then go and, and move money back into the market again. So you often see in equities in particular that uh, you'll see a bid that happens after the, the, uh, the end of each quarter. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, it's uh, certainly going to be something interesting to watch next week. And uh, that gives us, leads us nicely into what we're going to talk about next, which is the ASX. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with David Scott, and our guest is Laura Fitzsimmons, Vice President at JP Morgan. Okay, uh, finally, the crest of the hill may be in sight uh, for the um, for the for Australian stocks. Six thousand is within reach. Um, I think we're about as we're recording on Thursday. I think we're about two percent uh, of a move away from from that. Um, now, look. 6,000 in some ways, it kind of, you know, it doesn't mean anything, um, uh, but... It does in this occasion. Well, it does, because it was an era of you know, resistance that we saw in the past. Well, this is true. Yeah, it got to, what, 599? 599. 5996.9. Yeah. <laughs> and then everybody just... Just to, just to be accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, Laurie, maybe you can talk talk through, for those, for those who don't understand what um, overhead resistance is, maybe you can uh, talk through that. <laughs> Sure. Well, that's, uh, I guess we will be bumping up against that quite considerably. Uh, as you mentioned before, I think it was back in 2015. I think it was the second quarter as well. So we're at the same time of year that we were two years ago when we found, uh, we did reach that, uh, resistance level where obviously, you know, when you look at what markets have done and particularly this time around, people are going to be looking at that level and they're going to think, well, that's the, the time to sell. And does it also come around the time, you know, is it May and you're selling to go away and all those sorts of things? Maybe it's seasonal. So we could very well see the market run close to that level again. Um, where you, you'll meet a wall of offers and potentially it will just struggle to, to have the volume to break through there. Um, so, you know, that's something we'll have to contend with. But look, on the day, if there's enough momentum, uh, if, you know, something geopolit- uh, in terms of like a macro event's happening, you know, we get some positive tweets from Trump, whatever it might be, uh, iron ore's up or whatever it could be, particularly for the Aussie market, well, then, you know, we, we could break through and, and you'll think, what was that big level? Why was that a big deal? You know, clearly it's a psychological level, but sometimes we've found in markets that it's often, you know, just before and after those levels where you really find a lot of a lot of orders could be found. Um, so we'll be watching that closely. I think in terms of Aussie investors, I mean, you know, I mean, here in Australia, people are very much into their equities. It's uh, equities and property. It's it's all about that. And right now, properties are quite unattainable for a lot of people in terms of, of further investment. Uh, so I think at the moment, you know, people are still positive about equities. I think the commodity story has clearly been much more uh, upbeat lately than I think most expected. So iron ore has persisted at high levels. Um, and, you know, it surprised many of us. Uh, but we did actually raise our forecast this week at JP Morgan, even though it hasn't actually been a super strong week for iron ore itself, uh, but we do feel that there's probably some offshore supply, um, which is a little bit constrained at the moment, uh, and also there is just this quite strong demand from China, just 
you know, despite, you know, clearly levels of, of supply there already very high. Um, so right now we can't argue with those technical factors. Um, so we still think there's probably some more upside to iron ore, potentially even 12% more, um, which is quite interesting beyond our previous forecast. So look, it's, it's one of those things that 6,000 therefore may not be that much of an issue at all. Um, and certainly it would be a level we haven't seen it since 2008, which funnily enough was an important year for markets. Yes, yeah, it was somewhat. Uh, I think, you know, the, the year does ring a bell. Um, uh, I think, um, one thing that is, uh, uh, that is really interesting here has been, like you say, uh, it is quite extraordinary when you look at the chart of the S S and P and how that has really um, rallied um, after the the um, the big fall uh, back in in two thousand eight. Um, that you know you see where the S and P has ended up, uh, and the Australian market has been largely sideways. Mm. Um, it has, but you've got to remember that, of course, other settings such as monetary policy, the Currency level as well, uh, a very big determining factor. Isn't it? I go and challenge anyone to say, like, I oh, know the Aussie stock market sucks. You know, it's, it's not it's not performed to the same standard. Go and price it in US in dollars, US dollars yeah. and, then, and then tell me that it sucks. You know, you've got to compare apples with apples. That's what you need to do. Yeah, you've got a twenty percent differential there, right? Yes, uh, essentially. Yeah. So um, yeah, so it's um, it's very interesting what's going on with the ASX. I uh, you know, particularly being near quarter end, which always goes and raises my eyebrows slightly at the uh, at, you know when it happens but uh, the one thing I found interesting yesterday is that I'm not a massive contrarian but I do have a little bit of an inner contrarian inside me and I, I saw that um, when you start seeing financial markets make headline news particularly like the six o'clock news yeah. I often get the impression that once everyone knows in the six o'clock news every single person knows so for the contrarian out there, they might be thinking, well, if everyone's getting bought up about stocks, you know, it's breaking out, 6,000's on the way, this much has been wiped on in this session. Um, it's not a sign that it's going to go and, uh, and reverse, but it's an early warning indicator, I'll just say. Yeah, we also call that the taxi driver one where, you know, once, if, once the taxi driver mentions 100%. it to you, it's probably time to sell. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and, of course, look, uh, in terms of what the ASX is going to do, very much dependent on the domestic outlook. Obviously, it's huge. Um, uh, overseas uh, issues and, and uh, global markets inputs into this too. You mentioned the iron ore price, um, and we'll look at that in a second. Um, but in terms of the domestic outlook, we need to look at what the RBA is doing, and mm -hmm. a fundamental uh, part of this is the, um, the level of property market risk. Everybody wants to know um, everybody's take on this, um, so I've got to ask you, um, how do you gauge the level of risk in the property market at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we still feel fairly comfortable um, with, you know, let's look at Sydney, for example, where there still is supply issues and uh, we still feel it's growing, obviously, at a pretty hefty pace. And and probably the same thing could be applied to Melbourne to an extent um, in terms of the population increasing. Obviously, it's very um, popular for foreign students, etc. And, you know, we've had the same sort of thing in Sydney. Um, most people, when they look at property risk in Australia, they focus straight on the apartment sector um, and particularly in places like Brisbane and Melbourne, uh, you know, obviously the real focal points at the moment. Melbourne was, I think, though, probably one that has continued to, to exceed most people's expectations in that regard. So for now, that probably seems to me a, a bit steadier. Um, there is concerns this week, particularly, though, around Brisbane and some of the sort of fire sales that we're seeing um, in terms of, you know, developers just looking to knock something out and, and you know, up to 40% discounts and things like that. So and, and the auction clearance rate, I think, um, very they nasty. Are, they've, been, they've been hovering around about 50% or even lower for mm. uh, for a long time now. I think they're in the forties now. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that, that is something we watch. I mean, being from Brisbane myself, I don't um, I, I don't think it's as 
you know, clearly it's not as popular to auction your house over there um, as well. So I think here in Sydney, they, it has a real buzz to it as it does in Melbourne. Um, but I'd say it's probably less common anyway um, in Brisbane. But um, that's just my take on that. Uh, but, you know, certainly we're watching the clearance rates and we have to always consider, you know, because obviously Sydney and Melbourne have been very strong, but the, the, the turnover levels are not as high. So it, keeping an eye on that. And really it's just, you know, watching things like metrics in terms of, you know, how long properties have been on the market for, you know, how many days uh, have they not been sold. And I I guess one other market where we're watching very closely is the Auckland property market over in New Zealand, where clearly you've had macro prudential, um, you know, in quite strict macro prudential measures coming in, um, and they do actually seem to be having an effect now. They've had a few goes at the RBNZ, you know, different phases coming through, but it really does seem to be, you know, making a difference now. And I think the RBA will be watching that clearly very closely and APRA uh, to see, you know, what might, we might apply here in Australia. Um, we're still not sure what form it's going to take in terms of macro prudential measures or when we're going to hear about it, but it does seem like politically and from the central bank uh, and obviously from the regulator, you know, that we've had this, they look like they're now working together much more um, and they all seem to have realised that there potentially could be a problem. Uh, and it's not necessarily that it's going to end in tears, but more that just it's becoming very unattainable for Australians. Uh, and I think, you know, that then creates, you know, obviously indebtedness um, issues. And, and the, the RBA, when I look at their rhetoric, you know, a lot of people suggest, you know, they're on hold for now, you know, um, get new Governor Lowe is a lot more hawkish than his predecessor and those sorts of things. But for me, I still think they focus very much on the household and its level of debt. And even if you are very much ahead in terms of months of mortgage payments that you have to hand, it, uh, you know, or if you've even, you know, front-loaded and, and paid on those, it does seem to me at the moment that the, the RBA is very worried that all it takes is clearly that unemployment rate ticking up a little bit more and, and starting to get people, if they lose their job, then really there is that uncertainty that will feed into all of their spending patterns. And, and that's something that we're watching really closely. Uh, at JP Morgan, we still have two cuts from the RBA this year. So we're definitely at the, at the more dovish end of the spectrum compared to the market. But, you know, we still see there is a, a big problem on the inflation front. We, we don't see that going away anytime soon. We don't see wages going up. Uh, but we do think, you know, the cost of living is clearly getting more expensive. Yeah, it's very um, – we can, um, you know, uh, look at the Aussie dollar maybe as, as part of this um, – Looking um, pretty uh, strong uh, still this week, Dave. Um, you know, so again, just another part of this picture. It's very hard to see um, uh, this, you know, inflationary pressures, um, sources of inflationary pressures uh, for the Australian domestic economy. Not at all. And I'm sure that uh, if Dr. Lowe could go and uh, have his way, he'll go and uh, get some sort of uh, magic potion that would go and uh, you know, contain the risk of the Sydney and, uh, and Melbourne property markets. And I'm sure that he'd want to go and cut rates again. I, I can't understand why anyone who's watching underemployment go and drift up mm. to the highest levels on record is prepared to go and run inflation well below target for several years uh, wouldn't want to go and at least be able to go and offer some more stimulus without going and, and supercharging the, uh, the housing market anymore. So it's... They're between a rock and a hard place, and that's where I think that uh, there needs to be some sort of measure to come in. And I completely agree with you, Laura, about uh, they'll be watching what had happened in the Auckland property market because when they introduced their macro potential measures and they tightened them, the Arbyn's was also cutting rates. Yes. And they're also dealing with a, a huge increase in population, which is pretty much what you're seeing as well in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. And we just got data out today that we saw Sydney uh, population increase by 1.7% in, uh, in the year to June last year. Melbourne was 2.3%. So if they can find an effective way to go and cool those housing markets, uh, it might go and free them up to be able to offer some additional stimulus if the economy needs it. And quite frankly, I think it does at this point in time. 
Yeah, yeah, it's just interesting that the market hasn't really grasped that they can potentially separate those two things. You know, clearly macroprudential and cutting rates worked for the RBNZ, in, in, you know, in getting that lower currency, but at the same time, you know, cooling their housing market. So that's clearly what the RBA should want to do. So, but it's just interesting the market hasn't started to, to sort of, uh, you know, increase the likelihood of cuts again, um, you know, which is something that, you know, at JP Morgan we do feel is probably going to happen and we're positioned accordingly, you know, keeping longs in the front of the, the Aussie curve. Yeah, putting, putting a lot of faith in central bank you know they're, they're taking the rba on their word all the indications are from their forecasts and uh, and all the commentary here is that they're cautious optimism and and fairly optimistic uh, i know forecasts as well moving forward uh there's a lot they've of been the way every year it's just it, it's you know it's constantly revised down like yeah. be it growth or inflation so you just, why does it why does the market keep believing them why does the rba keep expecting correct. what it is correct no in, t- in terms of uh, macro you know nothing's really changed from my perspective when we discussed this last week you know we saw in the past they went in uh, and halved the uh, uh, the annual, well, they, they they cut the the cap in uh, in annual credit growth to investors to ten percent per annum. That was introduced in uh, in December two thousand fourteen. Uh, given the, uh, the very very subdued levels of household income growth, I, I can't understand why they just couldn't go and bring that down further. Seven percent, five percent. That makes a lot more sense to me. You know, in a, in a low income growth environment. Uh, and then, no, it's got a proven track record. We saw six months after those APRA uh, no, rules were first introduced, you know, all of a sudden you saw like the, the housing finance numbers for, for investors completely drop off a cliff. I've got no doubt that the same thing would happen again. Yeah. And another way we, you know, we've talked about a lot is also, you know, obviously interest only loans here. I mean, it, it's something that it's, it's 40%, I think, of the market. Mm. Um, so clearly if they were to be phased out or, you know, at least reduced in, in terms of the volume, that would make a big difference as well to the investor market. Uh, and just for the RBA, obviously the, the Australian dollar, very important commodity prices, very important input uh, into this. Uh, I'll just do this really quickly, but you mentioned, Laura, that um, you've upgraded your um, forecast for um, the bulks, was it? Uh, um, for iron ore. For iron yeah. ore. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, uh, Dave, um, iron ore got sheeted um, for a couple of days, but it found a bottom pretty quickly. <laughs> Speculators just deserted the Dalian uh, Commodity Exchange. Yeah, of course, I uh, know that was followed some remarks from uh, – from one of the uh, a big uh, body in the Chinese government, uh, the Reform Commission there, and um, they basically said that uh, that steel prices were too high, uh, and they don't they don't think the prices were justified, and that sent a, a murmur through the markets, then rippled, and then became a tsunami of people exiting uh, long iron ore trades. Yeah. Um, uh, so well, look, it'll be it'll be very interesting. We are also now. Um, just over a month away, month and a half away from the federal budget. Um, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating uh, to see what they put in terms of uh, their forecasts uh, for commodity prices. I think they lowballed it um, over the last uh, the budget and the Mayifo. So that'll bring a nice little lift, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a little nice little present. And but also, I think Morrison has been good and consistent. I don't, I don't think he lands this point very well, and I don't think it's very understood very well in, in the in the in the broader community, but um, he's been trying to land this point that you can't plan the budget based on cyclical movements in commodity, like in in the kinds of movements that we've seen on commodity markets, because they are they do look very short term, mm. uh, being highly volatile, and you can't plan a budget on that based on you know pr- predicting your revenues from this. So I think they've gone low and conservative in their mm. forecasts, which has actually made the budget bottom line look better, bad. And if they can 
if it, you get to May and actually the the price has been on an average level sustained higher, then you'll get a nice revenue inflow. Um, but um, it'll be interesting to see what they forecast in the um, over the forward estimates. It will, but of course, you know, partially offsetting what we're seeing from the commodity boom. And it'd be remarkable now that uh, we it'd have to take a collapse in the bulks you now. Iron ore, coking coal, thermal coal to go and see like you no know, those levels that were in the budget realised in terms of an average over the uh, the financial year, but of course employment growth has been fairly weak, uh, wage growth has been at record lows. And that means that tax take income tax is uh, is maybe a little bit softer as well. So you need to consider that because that is a far bigger component than uh, than commodity prices. Absolutely, the taxes we all pay uh, are the biggest um, source of revenue for the budget. Okay, um, I'm gonna quickly, I think we'll quickly wrap up because that's been a fascinating discussion, guys. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Laura, you and I were talking briefly uh, during the week about our favorite TV shows <laughs> and uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Washington political dramas uh, uh, tend to be high on the list, hey? Uh, designated Survivor, are you following that? Mark? That's a good one, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a big 24 fan, so for me, Jack Bauer appearing in, in something else, even if he's a different character now, it still feels like 24. Yeah, how does Kiefer <laughs> Sutherland keep landing himself in these ridiculous I know, situations? Absolutely. Yeah, I love Designated Survivor, and I think um, the new episodes come out every Thursday or Friday or, or whatever. Um, but it is, it's a good show. Um, uh, the, the, the plot gets mildly ridiculous. Uh, from time to time. But, but so does Washington. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I was a, I was a fan of the West Wing. Like years and years ago, I watched, um, the whole, this is embarrassing, but I watched <laughs> the whole West Wing twice wow. from start to finish. Um, yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed, uh, that show. I thought, um, the, 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 the story arc, uh, was fantastic in it. Uh, and, you know, you had the emergence of, um, of the, the candidate Santos, uh, towards the end, who was, you know, I, I believe he was partially modeled on Barack Obama when mm-hmm. Obama was a senator for, uh, for Illinois. Um, and, um, and this was before Obama was a presidential yeah. candidate and the story came up with Santos being this, so, you know, I can unite the country and, you know, you've got to believe in me and the sort of, um, you know, Hispanic candidate, all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, certainly House of Cards has been a great sort of gap filler uh, since then. I think it's a better show and Designator, Designated Survivor has been great too. Uh, Dave, what are you watching lately? Yeah. PMIs only. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> PMI <laughs> Weekly. Yes, yeah. Uh, no, Sky News Business, you know, Bloomberg, CNBC. Um, oh, look, uh, I tend to watch. I'm not a massive uh, TV series fan, so just not in my genetic makeup to really get into them. Um, given there's been, I was watching Ice Wars on uh, on ABC about uh, you know, the scourge of, uh, of ice in the community uh, we're seeing at the moment, and um, I've actually started going watching Breaking Bad uh, nice. again. Um, apart from that, you know, just for me, sport. You know, I watch I watch TV on the weekend at sport and rugby, cricket, soccer, <laughs> cricket, cricket league. more than rugby lately. I'm sure. Uh, well, there's been well, it's debatable. But there's been more to cheer about in the cricket. <laughs> yeah, 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 true. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week on the show has been Laura Fitzsimmons, Vice President at J.P. Morgan. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, it's been great having you here. Thanks very much, Paul. Uh, and David, uh, thanks again for uh, uh, an enlightening and uh, view to um, you know David Scott's uh, world. I think we're looking forward to the PMI coverage next week. Now, oh yeah, that's gonna be that'll be a forty-five minute special just on PMIs next week. No, uh, thank you, Paul, and thank you, Laura. No, no, great to uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks, David. N- next week, PMI week. Get excited, everybody. Uh, okay, Paul Colgan's my name. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at biaus. 
Uh, the show's been produced by Rick Salter, and we'll catch you next week. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.